Welcome to the Better Questions Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and for watching. And on this episode, we actually have Andy Kolber on the podcast. We were so excited to sit down and talk with her about mental health and the church. And this is a better conversation on mental health and the church. And it is amazing stuff. Like, I, I don't want to overhype it. I think you should just get into the conversation and and hear it for yourself but like i'm just still kind of reeling and excited from the conversation we had yeah and i'm just pointing out that so far dan and i are two for two on fascinating conversations when andrew is not (laughs) present uh but andy is a licensed professional counselor a writer and a speaker in castle rock colorado uh, she's passionate about the integration of faith and psychology and its significance for the church today, which we got to talk about some in this podcast. She's written for Relevant and CT Women, Encourage, and more. And she describes herself as a survivor of trauma and a lifelong learner. And she seeks to bring her knowledge um, around the work of change and the power of redemption and the beauty of experiencing God in our pain. Uh, She has been happily married for 11 years. She's the mom of two kids, and she has her first book set to release in January of next year. Yeah, and so anybody that is uh, out there listening or watching Um, that is interested in this topic. I don't want to uh, make you wait any longer. So here is our conversation on mental health and the church with Andy Colbert. Well, Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in working with trauma in the first place? Yeah. Um, So I am a licensed therapist in Castle Rock, Colorado, and also a writer and a speaker. I've been a therapist for, gosh, nearly 12 years And a lot of times I I say that I'm a trauma-informed therapist, and I do very specifically work with trauma, but I really work with people on a whole spectrum of of issues where someone might consider that, you know, maybe they're very high-functioning. But the trauma-informed lens is really important because really what that means is that I'm considering um, how our body operates and functions, and and especially our nervous system, and because that's really where trauma is rooted. And so even though someone might not be dealing with, I know we'll probably talk about this, but like full-on PTSD, they might be having some other things going on that are rooted in their nervous system. And so I have found that to be such an important lens, um, no matter who I'm working with. And so, you know, it could be something like mild anxiety and transitions to all the way, you know, complex PTSD, PTSD, 
um, or other complicated issues. So for me, I really came to this place in terms of um, my work as a therapist where I found talk therapy wasn't getting it done. It Mm. just, I found a lot of people were really stuck and that got me, I, it reflected my own experience where I sort of felt like I could only go so far. And so it really wasn't becoming more curious about how our bodies work. That really opened me up to kind of this other lens. Well, I know we'll talk about this more as we go, but it seems like when it comes to trauma, especially, there's just a lot of stigma um, and a lot of misinformation. And so I'm curious if maybe even before we get too far into this conversation, we could just take a second to define terms. Uh, so, so how would you explain what trauma is? So I would say trauma in its essence is anything that overwhelms our coping skills and our, um, and our nervous system. And because it does that, it doesn't fully process through our body and therefore it becomes stuck. The, the goal of trauma therapy and any type of trauma therapy is really integration. And so when something is stuck, it means that it is not fully connected to our whole body and brain. And therefore, when it gets, you know, maybe people are, are familiar with this term, but activated or, or triggered, the thing comes back up. Um, almost exactly like when it was experienced. And the reason it does that is because it hasn't had a chance to process like a normal memory. And so this then brings us to the difference between maybe PTSD versus what would be considered little t trauma. And so like PTSD is really when someone has experienced or witnessed uh, something that um, threatens their life or a sexual or type of violence, something that is where someone is sort of fearing that they may um, basically lose lose their life. That's how it's defined. And, the, and with that comes things like flashbacks and intrusive thoughts, hypervigilance. Um, whereas little t trauma really goes back to what I was just saying, which is any emotional disturbance that doesn't fully get processed in our body. And it's worth noting, and we'll probably get into this more, that a lot of this is about the perception of the person um, in terms of how disturbing the thing felt. So what might be more disturbing for, you know, someone standing right next to me, someone says something, and um, that might really bring up a little t trauma and they don't have the tools to work it through. Whereas for me, I might... Um, I may or may not experience it that same way, depending on my coping skills, my resilience, um, the family of origin I was brought up in. Um, so I, so I think it's important to note that perception is a really big part of that and really how our body experiences and has the support to process what we're going through. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Um, I'm really excited about this conversation. Um, I actually started therapy for myself about six or eight months ago. And it's just been, I mean, I didn't really know how much I needed it. And even the things we've talked about, like, are not even fully 
I mean, it's gone beyond what I thought I even needed it for when I went in. So it's just been awesome. I'm, I'm real excited. And taking another step back before we really dive into trauma in your work, I just thought we could um, get a sense from your perspective how most people, specifically in the church, view psychology and mental health in general. And maybe are there any misguided views or even misguided questions, misguided assumptions that people in the church have about mental health and self-care and psychology? (laughs) Well, how much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) No, um, that's a really good and fair question. And I think, and and also I just want to say good for you for pursuing counseling. I think that takes actually a lot of courage to be vulnerable um, and to do your own work. And I just want to put a plug in. I don't know exactly who the demographic of your listeners are, but um, I really believe that we can lead people to the extent that we're doing our own work. And so yep. it's not to disqualify work, you know, other love that we've given before we've done our work. Um, but the deeper we go in our own journey, the deeper we can take folks with us. And so I think that that really matters. Um, so to your question about those misguided views and some and, and how people perceive it, um, yeah, it's an interesting intersection for me as a, as a, you know, a professional therapist who's, um, you know, really integrates psychology very much. I work right alongside secular um, counselors and therapists and very much respect um, so many. I mean, there's been some cutting edge really helpful research and evidence-based work that's been done around neuroscience, interpersonal neurobiology, somatic psychology, that's really come up in the last 10 years. And so, um, so I say that because as a person who loves Jesus, it can be very awkward, (laughs) frankly, to, uh, to observe some of the things that are just frankly, not true about um, our experience and and how we talk about mental health. And I would say, you know, there's always nuance and variation. Like there are some um, folks in churches who actually are doing such a great job and who really um, are making it okay to just be a person who that's part of the experience of living um, in this world that's imperfect, you know? And then there are, what I also observe is that there, there tends to be some continued stigma, like you're struggling because you don't have enough faith. Um, if you really loved Jesus, you wouldn't, this, this wouldn't be happening. Um, and that's not always articulated, but it's, but it's implicitly, you know, it's implied. Um, I see folks really wanting to fix people with very simple, um, honestly uneducated perspectives. Um, you know, one of the things I say with, with trauma is that you, it's really important to know what you're dealing with. Like if, like for me, when I was first a therapist, um, I was actually quite scared of trauma because one of the things that I had heard is don't take it out if you can't put it back in. Mm. Because with trauma, when something gets activated, it can feel really scary for someone who has a trauma history where 
they're sort of out of what's called their window of tolerance. And that's when um, they go into fight or flight in the top of your brain, or it could be also into to dissociation, the top of your brain, which I don't know if you guys can see me, but um, if this is your brain, this is from Dr. Dan Siegel, um, your prefrontal cortex is, um, you know, sort of here. And when you go into fight or flight or then p- potentially into dissociation, the top of your brain is no longer online. Mm. And that's, that's the part of your brain that really is able to sort of observe, make um, sort of decisions based off of a lot of different perspectives. We can think long term. So the lower part of our brain is really about survival. So if you get someone into their survival mode and then you're like, okay, (laughs) bye-bye, like have a good life or like have a good day, they're like, their body is experiencing that moment as though, how do I just remain alive? Mm. So people don't necessarily make great decisions from that place, you know? And so we have to know how to get people reintegrated so that they can sort of be able to come from their whole self. So all that to say, coming back to the original question, I would just say that there's a lot of misinformation. There's folks who want to fix complicated things with Band-Aid answers. And, and we forget that God is with us in process. Like we were yeah. literally like, like it's, I, I often talk about we're in the already, but not yet. Like, yeah. We're so loved, but we're not finished. And that's okay. It really is okay. Yeah, thank you. That was awesome. Yeah, that's so helpful. I, When I just think about um, trauma and the way that the church does or doesn't respond to it, I think the number one thing I see is just ignorance or lack of education and information, which you talked about. But I think another probably misguided perception I see a lot is irrelevancy. Like, oh, well, we're, we're talking about a very small number of people that this affects in our church. And even when I just think about the statistics of number of women and men that have experienced sexual abuse. They typically say one in four girls, one in six boys. That's already a big percentage, but I'm just curious, what is this a larger reality than maybe many people think when it comes to the people in your church that you're around all the time? Mm, that's really a great insight. And absolutely. And I think that's why I say I'm a trauma-informed therapist because I would say most people who, who come to see me don't come because they're like, I have some trauma I need to work through. A lot of people that come to see me have a lot of little t trauma. And where this intersects with what you're talking about is that little t trauma that goes unaddressed can act in our nervous system in the same way um, big t trauma can. Meaning we have so many Um, areas where we get activated that we're constantly living either in fight or flight or because we can't resolve it, we go down into dissociation. So going back to what we've already talked about, that means we're not living from our whole self. That means we're what that is, you know, that's our, again, our, our prefrontal cortex is online and that means we're in our window of tolerance. And so this is a really big deal 
like, like a really big deal because this has so many implications for how we parent our, our children, how we interact with other people, our ability, like, like we are made for connection. And so when we're out of our window of tolerance, we're, we're not in a place where we can connect because again, um, safety and survival is the priority. And so the thing I would then add is both, I would say as a bigger culture, and then I would say in, in Christian culture in general, um, emotions are seen as a liability. And because that's true, it's like our emotions are part of what is necessary to process the little t trauma, right? So if you think about it, starting from your youngest ages, if you're told it's not okay to feel feelings, it's weak, um, it makes you less of a Christian, it means you don't trust God. What happens is that developmentally and physiologically, we don't develop a window of tolerance that can withstand feeling very much. So then you get into a situation where it is disturbing, but you don't have any tools or support or the physiological ability to tolerate what you've been through. And that will, will more than likely become either little T trauma or big T trauma. Well, and it sounds like what you're saying too, is you don't even have the language to express what, what you're experiencing or what's happening to you to even know what steps you're supposed to take to get help. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we absolutely don't have great language for this in the church. Um, we, people, what I see is that a lot of folks really work to disconnect themselves from their physical and emotional experience as a way to cope with um, how uncomfortable it feels to have these experiences. And, and what's so heartbreaking for me as a person who understands the physiology is that that is what creates the trauma. Like Mm -hmm. that disconnection is at the core of what creates trauma. And so it's, uh, it's hard because, you know, in this life, we will always have hard things. You know, we will like, there's no way for us to walk around with enough bubble wrap that we won't experience hardship, you know, but what we can do is learn to emotionally regulate, to learn that it's okay to need people. It's okay to need professional help. Um, And that then allows us to become resilient Mm -hmm. in the face of hard things like Difficult experiences don't have to become trauma. And that's a really big deal. It's a really big deal because it can literally change the course of your life and the, and the course of like your kid's life. Because this is how we live out of our trauma affects the nervous systems of everyone we're around, especially our kiddos, because they're even more malleable. Um, so it's really significant. Yeah. Well, I think that's a perfect segue because I really, for this conversation, was hoping we could kind of talk about it in two parts. So one would be some some better questions and better conversations we can have for people who have experienced trauma. And then the second piece would be better questions and better conversations for the church. So, so when it comes to those who have experienced trauma, 
What are some of the more misguided ways you see Christians try to go about healing from their own trauma? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is that people are really quick to, again, sort of internalize, like, if I'm struggling, it's because I'm bad. Um, Like, I must, like, man, if I could just add one more prayer time, you know, or like, um, if I, if I just confessed this sin, um, if, which more than likely I will, I would bet you money. That's, you know, it's not that they're not confessing sin. They're like, I would say most people are like, God, what else do you want from me? You know, like how else can I be connected to you? And, and the issue is that, that, you know, taking a, a note from your podcast, it's like, that's the wrong question to be asking. This is not about you, um, being bad. It's not about God not loving you. Um, It's about the fact that your body is experiencing a physiological response to something that's felt terrifying. And if we can't begin to integrate the fact that our bodies are such a huge part of what it means to be human, like we won't get unstuck. Like it, it is so integrated. So I would just say, you know, really, if you're a a person who's experienced what you think might qualify as any type of trauma, um, one of the things that I always love to people uh, love to invite people to do is just to become curious and curiosity is a great place because it allows us to be a little bit less judgmental. It's less about like, this is the black and white idea of what's happening and more like, like I notice when I get around a person like this, my heart starts racing and all of a sudden I kind of want to run out of the room. That's really interesting. I wonder what that's about. And if we can begin to be just curious with that again, rather than being like, Oh, I'm such a bad person because I can't stand being in the same room as that person. Right. That takes us automatically into this very limited, very, um, can feel very scary, just kind of stuck in that survival mode that, that then can be a bridge to say, I wonder if I should talk to a professional about that. Cause that's kind of an, that's interesting, you know? And, and the other thing I would just want to share is that, you know, God is crazy about you and, and grieves for the pain that you're experiencing, like is not happy that you would be experiencing such heartache or grief or feeling so stuck in a cycle of anxiety. And so those, I think, sometimes can just be a good bridge to know that, like, it's not about white knuckling it. In fact, sometimes we need to do the opposite. Um, And that's a really, it's that posture of saying, maybe this is a, maybe this issue needs a different answer. Um, than than staying in the cycle that I'm in. Yeah, yeah. I gosh, we had a, some other questions written down, and you're like covering all of them as you go, which is great. But like, you know, there's just this idea. If I can kind of sum up, of like you you nailed it that our bodies are bad somehow. Like, there's a lot of scripture that seems to indicate like the flesh is weak and the flesh is bad and all this stuff. And it, I think a lot of Christians get this idea that like. So my body is bad, so when I die, my spirit is going to go to heaven, so my body doesn't matter as much. And then the other piece to this, like, 
if you think of uh, the Genesis creation story, um, you know, Adam and Eve realized after they ate of the fruit that they were naked, and with that came shame. And I think there's this idea that, that okay, so my body is bad, and that's this idea of, uh, I don't know the word for it, but like, so I'm bad would be shame, that I am bad, but also my body, my flesh is bad. <laughs> and I could just see how that makes a cycle. And then, and then how you talked about like, I can't read my Bible and pray my way out of this. Plus, I'm bad and my body is bad. So, <laughs> it's like, how do you get out of that cycle? When do you know that it's time to get professional help? And then how do you find a good counselor that can just help you get out of those three, like, my spiritual side is bad, it's not fixing it, my body is bad, and I am bad. How, how do you find the right counselor that can help you and when do you know it's time to look for help? Yeah, there's a lot there, and I want to I want to come to the council. <laughs> I want to unpack the body part just a yeah, little. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I wanted to spend some time there too because I that that's something I've heard come out a lot in your work that I wanted to hear you unpack. But even just in addition to the idea that like bodies are bad, flesh is weak, uh, I can see from what you're saying how we fuse those ideas together because we get this idea that like, well, I have these temptations to sin and those are bad. And I could see how that gets fused with something like, oh, well, my desire to run out of the room when I'm around this person is bad. So it's not something I should be curious about and listen to. It's something I should push down and try to fight against. And so what what do you see that scripture actually says about bodies and how does that how does that inform the way you talk about trauma and healing? Yeah. Yeah, and I would say I do think that this is a really nuanced conversation and I don't think that I can answer every part of like what every verse around how, you know, the the badness of the flat, you know, like there's a lot there, but what I would say for me, the leading sort of hermeneutic, if you will, is, is Jesus. And for me, it is, you know, I think that we can talk about how the script, how scripture talks about our bodies, but first, I think it's really important to look at some of the really important points that Jesus, you know, that the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, you know, like yeah. that, what a significance that Jesus chose to come as a, as a person in humanity. And I think we sometimes like really like, we're like, oh yeah, that's nice. Next thing. But like, if you think about it, I'm like, God could have just done this any way he wanted. Mm. And I mean, there's so many ways Jesus could have come. You know, we could talk about the Gnostic heresy that says that the spirit is good and the flesh is bad, you know, which was ultimately um, essentially, you know, vetoed and, and put down. And I think. Yeah, Paul spends a lot of time writing against that idea. Mm hmm. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, one of the leading things is really about the model of who Jesus is and how he lived. Like, like Jesus set boundaries. He took naps. He wept. He, um, like he was, he was honest about his needs. 
he had preferences. So, I mean, I think for us, part of where we have to start is say, there is a significance in the fact that Jesus took on this flesh and that he's showing us um, that there's a sacredness to that. You know, and that he could have just come as a spirit. He really could have. He And so um, for me, one of the things I talk about and I'm writing about in my, in my book is I've, start, I've kind of coined this term functional Gnosticism, which is this idea that we don't say that we're Gnostic, but we live like it. Yeah. We say, you know, yeah, like Jesus came as a man and he and he died and he lived in a body and he and he lit and he, you know, all these things about Jesus's humanity. But then we look at our own humanity and we quite literally disconnect from it. We make ourselves so much less than than who we were made to be. We choose to not live in the bodies that God has given us. And and I really believe that Jesus has given us an invitation to say, like, he showed us the best way to be human in our bodies. Like, it is an, it is really this robust idea of we don't become more like Jesus by denying our body, but by fully living in it yep. and really honoring it. And so to your question about other parts of scripture, you know, I think about the fact that we were intricately formed um, you know, Psalm 139, I think about how we were, this, our body are, is a temple. Like, what does that mean? Like, that's not just an, that's not abstract. That's not, um, I mean, it kind of is abstract, but it's like, there's a physical concreteness to the fact that something's a temple. Yeah. Um, so we're, and we're the Imago Dei, you know, like that we just, there's a, there is, there's the essence of our maker in us. And so, for me personally, knowing what I know about trauma, like it's frankly like this beautiful puzzle <laughs> that fits together because I'm like, oh, the way we process difficult and disturbing things is actually by living in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And it's not a coincidence that Jesus invites us to live in our bodies. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I feel like over and over, uh, in Jesus's teaching, he's always taking concrete physical things and then equating spiritual truth to it. I mean, we even do communion. He's like, look at these elements that are here in, in reality and there's a spiritual quality to them. And it would make so much sense that our very bodies, that as much as we know about, you know, medicine and anatomy and our brain, at the end of the day, there's a lot to it also that we still don't really understand. <laughs> like how we are conscious beings you know and uh so it's it's a yeah it's just beautiful what you're saying how we need to maybe look back in at our own physical bodies and how there could be physical practices we could do that then can lead back to like connecting us back to our mind in a way it's just awesome uh and then what would you say for people who who are going through trauma is the point that they should be looking for when is it time to seek professional help and how, how do we seek professional help? How do we find the right counselor? How do you advise people for that? Yeah. Well, so the first thing I just actually tweeted about this this morning, but because people ask me this a lot, like, is my issue bad enough 
to need counseling. Like really, people really do because there's this like this feeling where, I mean, there's, it comes, there's all these different questions, but you know, I think we have this idea like, I'm not really there, you know, like, like we tiptoe around this. And again, I think part of it comes with our perceived stigma of mental health that like you have to create, like you have to reach a threshold at which you're bad enough, you know, like, Ooh, now I need it. And, and I'm not saying that there isn't a time where things get more significant. It, it, that's absolutely true. And, um, and there are times when, you know, we really, it's sort of almost not optional that we need that. But what I would say is, first of all, if you're listening and you're, and you're just wondering at all, I would, I would encourage you to, to check out counseling because preventative work, man, you know, what you can get done in six sessions <laughs> can feel so much more, um, really kind of get you on the right track and give you some skills and things like that versus maybe you get to a place where you're really in crisis and, and, and it could be a lot more long-term. So first of all, just like in a way like medicine where we're more preventative, I would say the same is true with our mental health. Like we don't need to, um, reach that threshold necessarily. However, um, what I would say is that, you know, if you're, if you're resonating with some of the things that I'm talking about, like feeling activated in your nervous system, wondering like this, this inclination, like things aren't quite what they're supposed to be, or maybe I can't quite connect to my emotions and I don't really know why. Or when she's talking about her body, like, I don't even know my body's there. Things like that. Those are all indicators that maybe we would, we could use some additional help. And I would say the other side of that is that anytime we bring up emotional anything, we feel like we're outside of our window of tolerance. Like I've talked about, that's another one. So, um, in terms of finding a good counselor, like there's always, there's always some nuance, right? Because there's some, there's, uh, there's some things that are involved. And one is that, you know, it costs money. So I get that. Like, I know not everybody in, is in a position where they can, um, they can, you know, have the money, the finances to do this. And so a couple of thoughts would be to say, um, a lot of counselors um, do sliding scale. And I think that that is a good thing to just know. And, and that if you have a counselor that maybe, you know, you've heard, like, I, I think it's always great to get a referral. Like if you've heard, like I had a good experience. Um, I think some of the best therapists, like that's how you find out about them because it's such a relational work. It's such a relational work that if you find that someone's had a good connection, that's a really good sign. Um, and so checking to say like, do you guys, do you do a sliding scale? Things like that. Um, I think also checking in, I'm definitely biased, but I'm trained in something called EMDR which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And that's a particular type of trauma. Uh, it's like a modality for trauma work. And I think something like that or another one called somatic experiencing, which is a very body-based um, type of therapy, that if you are connecting with the things I'm talking about, finding a therapist that has a good handle on on those has experience with those is a good thing to look for um and ultimately what i would just say is that i would recommend interviewing like two to three counselors ask if you can have like a 10 to 15 minute conversation with them and and try to see if you feel like you could connect 
because research has shown us again and again that ultimately the the strength of the relationship in in therapy is one of the highest predictors of success. So almost no matter what, it's really important that you feel comfortable and safe with the person that you're with. Um, because I think, you know, depending on your issue, it could be a, you could be there for less time or you could be there for longer, but either way that, that relationship piece is so important. Yeah. If I could just, um, you know, speak to my own experience in case it might help somebody. I think there have been a few years where I was in the back of my mind thinking like, I'm approaching 30 years old and I just feel like it's a good idea to just get counseling. I didn't have like anything specific. It was just kind of like, you know, I've just heard all this good stuff about it and maybe it's worth checking out. And it wasn't until like something more serious happened that it like propelled me through the door. But once I was like ready to look for a counselor, um, something that really was hindering me was the money piece and you spoke to. And actually I found out just through processing this with some coworkers that um, the church I worked at was willing to pay for the first three sessions. And so that might be something to look, look into for any of our listeners. Like if something to just ask your employer may very well be willing or even your insurance to cover the cost of the first or first few sessions. And that really helped because I I had three sessions without that burden or that excuse (laughs) to really see what was under the hood, so to speak, like to just kind of, you know, get an idea. And it was like, just amazing. I just kind of lucked out. I also picked one that was in my insurance network and that I had some referrals and I just lucked out on a a great counselor the first time. Um, But it was just really eye-opening in those first three sessions, like really showed me, oh, this is something I'm going to have to really work on for more long-term. And I wouldn't have known that. And I may not have even took the step had I not had that from my employer. So that's definitely something to to look into. Yeah, absolutely. Those are great points. Well, these have been some really helpful insights. And before we move into this section on the church, I just wanted to ask you one more question for those who have experienced trauma, especially just having heard a little bit of your story and background from some other places. I know when people experience trauma, especially I get this as a pastor, one of the biggest questions they want to know is why. And I I think that that's a question that we never can truly answer, but I am curious regardless of what answer we ever do or don't get to the why, what what would you say to the question, how, how can we experience Jesus through the pain and through the healing process? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think this is going to look a little different for everybody, you know, and I think one of the big things that's going to affect that is really our attachment style. And I, and I won't go all into that right now, just based off of, you know, time and things. But I'll say this, that if we have grown up in families where we didn't experience what's called good enough parenting. So if we were not, we, if we didn't experience caregivers that were attuned to us, like not just physically, but especially emotionally. It's like when you went through pain, when you were hurting, when you had feelings, What's interesting is that um, we almost certainly will project that attachment style onto other relationships 
and even and especially our relationship with God. And so, you know, just as like a personal disclosure, like my um, growing up in my family, I experienced a good amount of um, essentially like developmental trauma. And um, I, I had an attachment style um, that was essentially called anxious ambivalent. And what that means is that I would experience God as like a, a parent who was pretty much always angry with me, but like I wanted to like, please. And so what that did for, in my experience was um, it made me try really hard, made me white knuckle it a lot. Um, and, but it was like, it was very hard to just connect to the love that I, I know that God has always had for me. And it really required the, the relational um, healing and for me, that happened to come partly through my through therapy and, and, and also in like a safe connection with my husband. And that can happen in other ways. Um, but in doing that is really what allowed me to experience like as my attachment style healed, I could experience God in the maybe the holistic way of how God had always seen me. And so I share that because. I'm willing to bet, you know, we know that only uh, something like 55% of Americans have a safe attachment style, and then the other folks have most likely insecure attachment style. So I'm, I'm guessing that someone who's listening most likely resonates with this idea that in their head, they know that God loves them, but in their body, they don't know that yet. And so I just would first want to say that's, it's okay Like, and it's not to say that that makes it less true, but it doesn't mean necessarily that that's about faith. A lot of times that's about our emotional narrative that we've been given as kiddos. And we really need to honor that. We need to honor that and that that can definitely heal. And God is so present with us in that. But I would just encourage you to be, be patient and to recognize that like, um, you know, that, that like, don't be discouraged if things don't change right away, but, but continue to be curious about, um, you know, about where God is showing up in your life. And, um, I think, you know, just in a really tangible way, doing practices like, like breath prayer or centering prayer, things that are really less about doing and more about being, um, well, first of all, they integrate our prefrontal cortex, which we know is really important. And it also allows us this sense of there's all like this, all these points of connection. It's like God's just with us, right? Emmanuel, God with us. And I think in having some of those experiences, those can be building blocks to experience God as not the, not the, the parent who's over there like, oh, I'm, I can't wait for you to just finish this so I can love you. Or the God who's like, frankly, I don't really care. Or even the God who's like, I can't wait to punish you, right? Yep. It's, it's this reorient, reorienting as the fact that God is with us right here in this moment, loving you, loving us. And that hasn't changed, but our internal ability to receive that does change. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I think that's a great way to wrap up that first section. Uh, and as we move into that second one, we wanted to talk to, and we'll just talk about it briefly, 
which is um, in the church, uh, trauma in the church, I wanted to kind of steer the conversation into something we've touched on a little bit already, like how maybe the church, whether they know it or not, can actually cause trauma or perpetuate that cycle by some of that misguided, you know, beliefs. Um, but I wanted to also then ask, so how how can the church respond to people that have been traumatized, maybe even from another church? Like, how can they, they help people heal from that? And how should the church respond when they themselves have been the one that caused the trauma? Mm. Yeah, those are those are some big questions, <laughs> but I think they're really good, and I'm glad you guys are asking and wondering. And um, so, yeah. So, to the first one, how should how can the church respond when like someone who's experienced trauma is there? Um, I think I think one of the first things I would just say is it's really important. Like we actually, as we started out the podcast, I talked about you know doing your own work, and I would say one of the best thing that things that churches can do is to be really aware of how important it is that leaders and leadership are involved in and aware of personal growth, emotional maturity, um, having, having places to sort of unpack the things that are hard in their life. And, and the reason is, is that we literally know our, the way that our brain works is that our ability to empathize with another person is based on our ability to feel our own feelings. So if we are blocked, if we are um, disconnected, if we are have a lot of trauma and maybe we, it's just not tolerable to feel our feelings, what that means is, is, is we literally cut ourselves off from the ability to connect with people who are coming in in places of, of high vulnerability. Yeah. So the first thing I would say is to really make that a priority, that there would just be a, a, a standard, a desire. It doesn't mean we need to be perfect. In fact, it's our willingness to say that we're still in process. That probably is more important than anything. Um, and so just as like a, a sort of a framework, I think that that matters so much. Um, and then I think the other the other parts are recognizing um, you know, just like the piece around even like really simple trauma informed perspectives of understanding, like, what does fight or flight mean? What does dissociation mean? Um, and having some understanding of there are things that are going to be talked about in the church that might be triggering for someone. So yeah. could you, um, could you even gently say, Hey, if this is hard for you, just know, you know, it's okay to, um, talk to a pastor afterwards and, and get some resources or just know, like if this brings up anything for you, just know, you know, that doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. Um, and that, you know, just like do what you need to do to make sure that you can take care of yourself. So even some of those types of disclaimers can really make churches feel so much more safe. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so those would be a, a few that I would say for that first one. Um, if I, if I kind of take that even further, though, what would you recommend for churches as a response, like when they themselves have caused that trauma? Because you, I've come to find out the longer I've been a pastor, I just I share, shared a story the other day about a, a message that I received not too long ago from 
a student I had in a previous min- ministry that recalled a conversation we had had in my office that caused some trauma for them to work through. And I didn't even know that had happened, Uh, like that it made them feel that way until all these years later when they told me. And so sometimes in the church, we even unintentionally cause trauma. And when that is brought to our attention, what is the best way for us to respond? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really important question, partly because, you know, the ch- there's a lot going on in, in the church. And I think partly, it's not that it wasn't going on before, but it's becoming more, um, people are seeing it, like it's becoming more brought to light. And so um, I think these are important conversations of like, what does, what does a reparation look like? What does a repair look like? Right. Um, I think about this from a parenting perspective. And this is kind of interesting because, so I talked about that attachment style, right? Um, All of us have a different attachment style. And and in general, we either have a secure attachment style or we have an insecure attachment style. And there are different categories of the insecure. But one of the things that is notable about a secure attachment style that we are given in childhood, it's not that the parent is perfect, but that they, they, uh, they, they repair what they have wounded, right? So, it, and again, like, we don't always know when we've wounded, but like, to the extent that it's possible, we, we see that like, oh, I hurt your feelings, or I overreacted, or I, you know, I was really anxious, so you were in pain, and I didn't respond. You know, those things that, um, that we can come back to later and say, you know, honey, I am so sorry. I was, you know, I was so distracted. Like, I love you and I, and what's going on matters. And can I have a hug and whatever we need to do to, to, to repair that relationship. And so I bring that up because at its essence, church is a lot about relationship, you know? And I think the reality is, is that we're people and, and we're imperfect and we will mess up. Like we just, we just will. And that's why I think the therapeutic part for, for people who are in ministry really matters because that's a heavy burden. Like in the sense of like, you're constantly working with people and it's, it can be very um, intense and we can experience things like secondary trauma and all that. Um, And we also need room to process our own experience. So with like the example that you give, I think there's a sense to which we can only repair what we know is happened. Right. So part of how we can know is a continuing to get training around things like mental health and trauma. So we become more sensitive in the first place. But then if we say something, I think if we have an awareness, we do what we can to say, how can I say that differently? Is there something I can do? How can I earn back your trust? Or to also respect if they are like, you know what, it's, it's kind of not personal, but like, I just can't right now. Like we, it's also really respectful to, to, to honor someone's boundaries when they say like, I really appreciate your apology. And also like, I feel like I can't do that right now because that is actually very trauma informed. A, A trauma informed perspective is all about choice. It's saying you, the things that have happened to you are rooted in feelings of helplessness and overwhelm. 
And so mm-hmm. I don't want to put you in a position where you feel like you no longer have a choice. And so I think those things that really honor and empower people to say, I realize I made a mis- like a big mistake. Um, I'm going to do what I can to, to earn back trust. Here are some ways I think I could do that. And I just want you to know that like, I, I trust you to tell me and to really have the choice to, to make this feel okay for you again. So I know we're spending a lot of time on this one point, but I, I do have one more question about it. Um, so I, I love everything you just said. And even just for me personally, that was really helpful in considering how I can approach those conversations in the future. But everything that you just said is also completely hingent upon that person or those people or whatever the representative is of the church that caused the trauma admitting that it actually happened, which I find is so rare. And I'm just curious, why why are people so unwilling to either admit, yeah, you're right, like I did cause that trauma for you. I'm so sorry. Let, let's try to repair that. Or at least admit, since you have pointed out so much of trauma is based upon perception, at least point out like, I, like I, I'm so sorry that you experienced that based on an interaction we had. Why, why will people not just admit that that happened? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this truly goes back to doing our own work. And I mean, that's why anytime I talk about any type of helping profession, which is really what I would say in terms of ministry, it's like, there's an element to which that's what that is, is because we're, you know, we're with people and, and, and often in vulnerable spiritual, physical, mental places, um, that we have to be aware of our own blind spots. We have to be connected to our own emotional experience. And that then, if we're actually doing that, it produces a sense of humility. It just does. I mean, if you're really doing your work, it, it does. I mean, you could go into a counselor and pretend, you know, you could do that. I mean, you could, you could tell people you're doing your work. That doesn't mean you are. Um, and so there's a sense in which when we recognize our own, like, like I don't have to be finished. I'm not more valuable if I'm perfect. Um, I have issues too, because that's what is, it just means to be a human. There is an, it's easier than to be like, oh, you're right. I, I did. I did mess up. And it doesn't mean that that's not hard or very likely can produce shame for the person who is, is getting the feedback, you know, which again, it's like, that's why folks in, th- in, in ministry, it's important to have support, like to go and talk with a counselor and be able to say, someone gave me this feedback. And my response is that I am bad, that mm. I am, I am. And what that makes me want to do is be defensive. And because right with shame, what we do is we either offload it through blame or we just essentially internalize it and we get stuck or we get, we get the resources and the support to move through it. And yep. so really only one of those is healthy. 
right? And so, and so in order to move through it, we, we can't do that alone. We, we need support to say like, whoa, like that brought up me feeling like I was nine and I messed up and I'm a little, like a little kid right now who feels like they're not good enough. You know, and I, so, so you see how these are all connected, right? Like you can't do it in isolation. It's just not possible. I wish that all 7 billion people on our planet could just hear that (laughs) and like, you know, experience what it's like uh, to be able to process through that and have that perspective. I think, gosh, so many of our arguments and fights and misunderstandings and miscommunications could just be helped. If we really understood, oh, I'm being defensive right now because you hit a wound that you didn't even realize you hit that I don't even realize I had, you know. Uh, but so as we begin to close, um, I just wanted to ask a little bit if you could just like maybe even dream for a second. I don't even know if like you've ever seen what I'm going to ask even happen in a church. But, you know, we, we, we know that Jesus is a great physician. And a lot of times in church, when we think about helping someone uh, and like being a pastor, I think a lot of people assume that if you're a pastor, then you're a counselor. And they kind of maybe even confuse that. So, they'll go to a pastor and the pastor will go, well, just let me introduce you to Jesus. (laughs) You know, like he's the great counselor also, right? And, And I know for me, like I went through Bible college and I just did not, I... I, even though I'm a worship leader, I, I got a preaching degree and I am not trained for that, you know? And I just can't imagine somebody coming to my office, you know, if I was a lead pastor with these issues. Like, uh, so anyway, my question is like, what should the church's role in healing be in a perfect world? And if that is the case, what like programs should we be offering to, uh, you know, to our people that we're just not right now? And then what, like, training resources are out there for pastors to actually maybe get more qualified if people are going to approach us that way, if that all makes sense? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I'll maybe work backwards. Yeah. Jump around a little bit. But first of all, you know, I think it's really important to really honor the training that you actually have, right? So, recognizing that there are uh, there are times when kind of what people need is like a, like a me too. Like you're not alone. Like you are loved. Like I'm with you in this hard thing. And, um, you know, there's this relational piece that I think it's really appropriate for pastors to come alongside people in that way to just as this element of like, I'm with you, you know, and the church is with you and we're in community and I see you. And, and, and it's more from a peer to peer place. And I think that that's great. And it's, it's, it's wonderful. And, you know, for like bereavement and grief and those types of things. But I think after, I think what would be helpful for pastors is to work with potentially like local counselors potentially to get some understanding of here are some basic things to look for of when you need to refer immediately. (laughs) Like, like maybe, maybe you still meet with them as a, from a place of like, Hey, I'm just here to support you and listen. But like the work, the work is not done there. You know, the work of what it means to 
um, dive into childhood wounds, to learn to emotionally regulate your system, to understand um, how to move through trauma, um, you know, some of those types of things to really recognize, like, even if you understand some trauma, the more you understand trauma, the more you respect it. Yep. Because you realize that just because you know about trauma doesn't mean you can help someone move through it. And those are two very different things. Um, a trauma-informed perspective really just allows us to give people the freedom to stay in their window of tolerance and have more choice. So like churches that do that maybe just get more comfortable with the physiological understanding of even what's happening. But they don't necessarily come to believe that they might be the ones who can move them through the trauma, you know? Um, so I, you know, I, I really like, um, this is less of the trauma piece, but in general, I think, I don't know how to say his last name, but, um, Peter Scazzaro, I think it's like emotionally mm. healthy church, emotionally healthy leaders. I think he has some really good, good, um, perspectives on what it looks like to, um, you know, just basically have a climate in a church that is um, like emotionally healthy and aware. And, and I think that um, that is like just a great resource for leaders. But, you know, we are sorely needing more resources around trauma. I mean, we just don't. That's honestly part of the reason why I love to talk on podcasts because I like I'm like, we just don't we just don't have a lot. We have, I think, you know, there are some good stuff coming out, but it really, so much of this is like just in the last 10 years, we have all this new information. And I think we're still learning to integrate that. And that's okay. Like it is what it is. Um, but, but there's, you know, there's definitely need. So I think the more that um, churches can just be open to learning and recognizing that there's great information out there. We just, we need to, to be willing to, to seek it out. So when, when it comes to the church's um, role and process in walking alongside people as they're going through the healing journey, one thing that I have experienced myself, but also seen lots of people experience in, is they try to be that for people who are going through the healing process and the people who have experienced trauma going through that process very much just push them away. Uh, and you've even given me language to realize, well, it seems like how that makes us feel and respond when that happens is very much based on our attachment and what kind of personal work we've done. Um, but my question is wh when that happens, so we listen to this podcast, we're like, okay, like we want to be that kind of church that that creates this safe place and is encouraging and supportive and walks through. And then we get the cold shoulder. How, how do we, how do we respond? What, what is our next move? You know, I would say remaining, honestly, it's like almost too simple in this sense, but I think there's a lot of value to it. Like remaining loving and open, but respectful. Yeah. And really, because again, coming back to the essence of trauma, it's that you don't have a choice. And so even when we think like, ooh, like I'm going to like make you love me. <laughs> like I'm going to, I'm going to force this love on you. The, the problem is that when we take away choice, we, that is, can be so triggering for so many people because 
it, it, it must be about them feeling ready to receive that. Yep. And, you know, this is a, and I really love your question because I, I, I think I can so see like how that can feel such like such a bummer as a church that wants to be supportive, but, but it is such a, it is such a gift to people when you, their no is respected, when they are really valued and honored and their voice is like, okay, like you can do Sundays right now and that's it. Okay. Like when you're ready, we, we got you. Yep. And, you know, for me, from the therapy side, um, what I see is that like people will go in far as in therapy as they're ready to do. Like resistance in therapy plays a role and the role that it plays is that that some part of them is saying, I don't feel safe yet. And so I would just offer that to you as an idea in, in the church is that when someone says, Ooh, uh, too much, it's because, um, you could be doing everything right. And that there's a sense in which it's just not about you. It's about their like they're needing to pace themselves, like their narrative that they were given that told them they don't have choices and that they now need to say, thank you so much, but no, like, this is how I need to do this. And what you might find is that as you really honor those things, people can inch their way in. They can find their ways to say, you know what? Like, yeah, like I want to start coming to this thing on Wednesday night, but I'm going to sit by the door if that's okay. And when we say, you bet, you sit by the door, like, and you say, if you stay for 15 minutes, so glad you're here. Thank you so much for coming. And that's it. So I think that that's a framework. That's a very trauma informed framework because it says, rather than like, if you're committed, like you're here four days a week, you're part of every single group, you know? And it's like, people are like, whoa, like, like, I just like, thank you, but I can't. And so what it does is it makes it a little bit more nuanced and a little, and it can feel a little safer. That was so helpful. Love it. This conversation has been really enlightening and I so appreciate your time. Uh, If our listeners want to find more um, from you, more of your work, where, where do they go? How can they go about that? Yeah, so I have a website and I actually made a special page just for your listeners um, that I put some resources on and you can sign up there for my newsletter um, and some other updates. And so it's bravelyimperfect.com slash askbetterquestions. Um, so yeah, if you go, if you go to that, sign up for my newsletter, I just did a whole video. I'm kind of experimenting with some new things, but I did a whole video on YouTube and it's about, um, like how to ground yourself. And what that means is, is like, basically how do we get back into our window of tolerance? So that, um, you know, kind of, as we talked about that throughout the, the video and throughout the, um, the podcast, that might be a good resource. So I'd love for you guys to go there and sign up. Awesome. And uh, do you want to talk about your book coming yeah, out? Yeah, you have a book coming out at the beginning of next year. Can you give us a sneak peek? Yes. Well, yes, I can. I like So I'm in this space where we're like almost announcing my title. So I can't announce the title yet, which is so hard because I just want to talk about it. But the working title, which is going to be different, but it's called Becoming Whole. And it's basically about how do we 
honor the needs that God has given us and stop white knuckling it. Mm. And so it's really through this trauma informed lens that we've been talking about throughout the podcast and like, how do we try differently? You know, like so many of us get stuck into this, this rut of like, you know, if I pray hard enough, I do all this stuff and it's just, we find that it just doesn't work. And that is, that's kind of my story. You know, I'm a survivor of, of complex trauma and kind of grew up white knuckling it. And I got to a point where I just, I couldn't do it anymore. And that created a really big change in the trajectory of my life. So it's a, it's a little bit of all those things. That's awesome. And that gets released January? That comes out January of 2020. So we're still always out. We are, um, and if you sign up for my newsletter, you'll get all the updates. But um, basically, I think I'll have the cover and the title coming in June and I'll be on Amazon. I'm I'm publishing with Tyndale, which I loved working with them. And yeah, and if folks want to follow me on social media, I'm at Andy Kolber on both Twitter and Instagram. So I would love that. Well, hey, thank you so much uh, for your time. It was great having you. I hope we can do it again sometime, maybe after your new book drops. I, I would love that. And yeah, I keep asking better questions, you guys. I love your work. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Well, thanks for listening to our better conversation on mental health and the church with Andy Kolber. Man, that was that was such good stuff. I hope that you were as uh, encouraged and inspired and learned as much as we did. Yeah, and again, as somebody that uh, is in therapy myself right now, a lot of this stuff um, wasn't brand new to me, but I think if it like blew your mind, like it it has me when I've been in counseling situations, like I would just encourage you to uh, continue to look for those resources that we mentioned, and uh, maybe investigate um, if counseling could be for you. And uh, wanted to remind you about the resource that uh, Andy put on her website, bravely imperfect.com slash ask better questions please check that out join her mailing list uh, get on uh, get all the information about her book as it comes out uh, I am so excited uh, to read that when it's when it drops in January and uh, this stuff is so important seriously um, we need to be asking better questions and having better conversations surrounding this because our mental health is so important to integrate our mind with our body with our spirit to be a whole complete human being i think is so important it's something jesus really cares about and uh, it's something we shouldn't keep putting off any longer so please check those things out as always don't forget you can like us on facebook follow us on instagram it's always great to just go ahead and subscribe on either the podcast app or on YouTube so you get notified each time we release a new episode. And also, it helps us anytime you rate, leave a review, and most importantly, share so that awesome conversations like these can be shared with your followers as well. Thank you so much again for listening and for watching, and uh, we'll see you next time.